As you're getting your Bible, let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. One of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible is that whatever comes up next, we preach it. Doesn't matter. And I don't really think you need to question uh, motives on the sermons on Sunday morning because really, whatever's next is next. And this morning, it just happens to be on money and specifically giving. Now, before we kind of get into all this, I I just want you to know, this message is for you. Our our church is doing great financially. It's it's amazing. I can't believe it. It's probably one of the best positions we've been in since I've I've, I've been here financially speaking. So it's not like, oh, we're, we're down, so I need to figure out how to get you to give so we can get back up again. You know, we're doing great. So I really want you to understand that, that this is for you to use your money for the glory of God. And the way you manage your money and use your money, I'm not joking, it reveals your heart and it reveals your relationship with God. It actually shows up in your giving. It really does. So this is a very serious message this morning. And I I really hope you pay attention. If you take notes, take notes, take it to heart, take whatever. This is important. This is for you. A lot of you are young. You're not quite sure. You're just trying to figure out how to manage money, period. A lot of us are older, still trying to figure out how to manage money. And how does God play into all that and giving? Or you just kind of guess whatever you feel like, whatever's in your pocket or purse this morning. What exactly do we do? The Word of God is very instructive. So let's jump in and let's all stand as I read Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. We are going to start in verse 6. Malachi 3, verse 6. Let me read the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. In this fifth disputation, we have six disputations in Malachi where... Uh, the prophet, God, accuses the people of wrongdoing. They challenge him, and then he explains. This is the fifth disputation, and it's a pretty serious charge. They are charged with robbing God. That's a big deal. 
Now, before we get into what this strong accusation means, you need to notice that the disputation begins on a note of grace. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God does not change for the better. He does not change for the worse because he is already perfect. And the specifics of his unchanging character right here in this fifth disputation is he does not change in his faithfulness. He is a faithful God, consistently unchanging in his character of faithfulness toward the Israelites. It's Israel. They're the one that changes in their, unfa- in their un- you know, they're unfaithful. We can put it this way. They are uh, unchanging in their unfaithfulness. They don't change in their unfaithfulness. They have a history of unfaithfulness. Look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. It's their pattern. The rebellious generation during Malachi's time was, was nothing new among the Israelites. They have a history of turning away from God's commandments. But because God does not change in his faithfulness, the people, as it says, are not consumed because God is not going to consume his people because he is going to maintain a remnant. He will maintain a people for his glory and the praise of his name. He will discipline them, but he will not consume them. And since God is faithful in his love toward them, then guess what? They can change. The good news of the gospel is because God is unchanging in who he is, we can change. That's the good news. There's always this opportunity for us to change by the power of God through the good news of the gospel. Look at it says again in verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God says he's not going to be separated from them anymore if they would just return. It's like he has his arms open wide. They are very wide. He is an unchanging God. He says, come on back. Come on back. I'm unchanging in my faithfulness to you. I'll forgive you. I'll receive you. Just repent of your sins. Come back to me. Come on. Return to me. Because I am unchanging, you can change. Well, look at the people's response at the end of verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? Now, there are many things God could say at this point. He has already called them out on their cheap worship. He's called them out on their immoral relationships. He's called them out on questioning his character of justice. But there is one issue that God is going to highlight right here in this passage, in this disputation, to show how far they have strayed from the Lord, and that is the issue of giving, specifically in their tithes and offerings. Look at verse 8. Here's the accusation. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Do we steal your stuff? Do we break into your house? Explain. Verse 8. In your tithes and contributions. Let's stop there. Let's figure this out. What does it mean, tithes and contributions? In the Old Testament context, what does it mean? Well, these tithes were, were mandatory offerings that were given for the Levites. And these Levites, it was a, a tribe, they facilitated the worship within Israel. It made up of the priests. The Levites also had the people who facilitated the temple services. You think it's about some administrators or some singers and such. 
And now these, that was what the tithe, the percentage of their income would go to support these Levites. But it also says contributions. And it's likely that these contributions were not, invo- were not voluntary, but were involuntary. They were mandatory, which were like animal portions of your flocks that went into the temple that also made provision for the Levites, the priests, and everybody who worked within the temple. Now, at minimum, the Israelites were required to tithe a portion of their income, a portion of their animals, a portion of their crops, and bring it to the temple. Now, what was this percentage? Many of you who have grown up in churches, especially you Southern Baptists, know that it's always 10%. It's 10% no matter what, because that's been the, the, the big thing. But if you study the Old Testament kind of in some specific details, and you look at some different tithes that are required through Israel, we're not going to get into it this morning, is that that percentage is likely not 10%. The percentage is likely 23%. It's a lot. That was the required amount that would go to the Levites. And the reason why it would go to the Levites is because of worship. The money was meant to facilitate worship at the temple, to keep all those sacrifices going, to keep all the the specific things that would happen, administrating everything. It required a big percentage of the income from Israel, 23%, 10 to 23. We can debate that later. But it was needed to facilitate worship. Any less would hamper the worship of the Lord. Like if they they were slacking off in their giving, they were slacking off in their worship because the priests couldn't be paid for. The administrators couldn't be paid. They couldn't bring the right amount of things, and so worship would suffer. So before we go any further, we, we've really got to stop and think about this because I, I really just want to run through the text, but I know that we're in this, this context where we're, we, we, where we're Christians, where we're, we're believers in Jesus Christ. He's come. And the question is, should Christians still tithe today? The Old Testament concept of tithe, does it carry over into the New Testament church? I, it, it can be explained in, in different ways, but a very helpful way I've heard it explained, I'm going to be kind of saying a little bit now from this, this book called Neither Poverty Nor Riches by Craig Blomberg. Very good book. If you ever want to study this in detail, Neither Poverty Nor Riches by Craig Blomberg is a very good book. But try, try to stick with me as I explain this. We have the Old Testament sacrifices in the temple. And they, they point it forward to Christ and the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. So we, we'll be all agreed with that. The Old Testament sacrifices were, were shooting forward and pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins. And since Christ has come as the final sacrifice, the animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. So on Sunday morning, I'm not up here butchering animals. Be grateful. We have one final sacrifice in Christ. It, it, is, it is done. It is finished. Now, since tithing was done to facilitate a sacrificial system ultimately fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ, then the argument goes that tithing is no longer required because we don't need to keep up that system any longer. So you may wonder, why, when I read my New Testament, why can I find any passage that commands tithing? And the answer is, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His once-for-all sacrifice, you could say, in a sense, has fulfilled the idea of tithing. Now, to be fair, those who argue that, that tithing is not commanded in the New Testament would also say, yes, but it's also not rescinded in the New Testament. 
And so if you want to argue, say, we must still tithe today. I mean, I'll be great, very gracious with you. I won't die over this, but I'll be gracious with you. If you think that tithing is not rescinded in the New Testament, then I think you have two issues you need to deal with. You need to figure out what tithe stays and which tithe goes. Because, like I said, there's more than just a one tithe in the Old Testament. And once you decide which tithe stays and which tithe goes, then you've got to figure out which percentage is still relevant for Christians today. Is it 10%? Is it 23%? So I'll put that back on you to figure that one out if you want to argue for tithing today. But when we read the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul, when he argues to the churches about giving, he does not argue for them to tithe, but he talks about specifics in, in giving. And what you'll notice is that the nature, the principles behind the tithe are still relevant for the church. And if you're thinking that I'm coming here this morning to lower the bar on your giving, to lower the bar on the concept of tithing, you will see that the New Testament raises the bar on giving. You'll be surprised. So I'm going to give you a couple, uh, about three or four principles to think about before we move on to Malachi, about tithing, which has been fulfilled in Christ, about giving specifically in the New Testament church. Let me throw some verses up for you. This first one comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, notice that, each of you is to put aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul is advising here on the first day of every week, which is indicating that your, your giving should be on a regular basis, the first day of every week. And it should be proportional. Notice that it says, as he may prosper. So if you have prospered a lot, you should give a lot. If you've prospered a little, then you should give a little. No one in here should feel guilty because they have not prospered a lot. If you prosper a lot, give a lot. Prosper a little, give a little. So, but your giving is to be on a regular basis, and it's to be proportional. And now you're wondering, is it mandatory? Is it mandatory that we have this absolute fixed amount that you must give? Well, the New Testament seems to argue that giving is voluntary. And it's voluntary with our eyes on Jesus. Let me give you this passage in 2 Corinthians. This is a good one. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So our motivation in giving is to be voluntary that springs forth from Christ's love for us. Get this, Jesus Christ in heaven, rich, humbled himself, became a man, great God-man. What, what humility became poor, died on the cross for sinners, was buried, rose again. Now, all sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ can become rich in spiritual blessings of salvation and eternal life. And all believers in here should set their standard of giving based upon this richness in Jesus Christ. He was rich. He became poor so that we may become rich in him. 
for those of us who have, it should spill out with grace and gratefulness to give. Because of Christ. Because of joy in Christ. One of my professors I had last year, Walter Kaiser, this is what he says. He says, if a tenth was the minimal amount under the law, how can Christians do any less? Perhaps we should consider not how little, but how much we can give, seeing how richly blessed we are in Christ. So it's interesting. I don't want to argue with you over percentages. Let's argue, is it 10%, is it 15%, is it 20%? What is the percentage? Well, what is your joy in Christ? How blessed are you in Jesus for what he's done to you? How rich are you in Christ? Let that spill over in your giving. But don't be pouty about it. Do it with joy. Look at this next verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to be happy about it. Not sitting there pouting or, oh, I got a gift. No, it's joy. So are, are you tracking with the New Testament concept of giving? To be on a regular basis, proportional to your income. It should be voluntary based upon the joy you have and the riches of Christ. And it should just spill over. So on Sunday morning, when you, when you give in the offering plate here on Sunday morning, the giving should be regular and proportional to your income. And as you care for the poor and you send missionaries around the world, it should be done with generosity and joy. We should give to the glory of God. But like most in Malachi's day, we don't. We don't. That's why Malachi has a lot to say to us. So after that little time out, let's jump back in. Here we go. Verse 9. You were cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Like, let's get a concept on what it means to rob God. Here's the picture. God owns, he, he owns everything. And since they are refusing to give him the portion that he requires for worship, he's punishing them with a curse. You know what the, the curse is? No rain. And you know what happens when there's no rain? No crops. When there's no crops, there's no dinner. And so the nation is suffering because they're robbing God. But once again, it's in the context of grace. God in his unchanging character, he wants to bless his people. He loves them. He wants to pour out a blessing. He wants to literally shower them with so much blessing if they would just return. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That's like the temple treasury or the place that provision was kept for the temple workers. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Oh, that's it right there. Verse 10, that's the problem right there. They weren't bringing in the full tithe. Instead of bringing in the full percentage, they were only bringing a portion, and it doesn't matter what it was. They were still robbing God. Maybe no one else noticed, but they were flat out robbing God. One of the hardest things about giving back then and even now 
is it's a very hard thing to monitor. The priest didn't know how much someone made, and it was in the, pretty much on the honor system to bring in the full tithe, which basically means that every single person in here, you, you could just be a thief. You really could, and, and there's no way that we could monitor it. I, this, this may sound a shock to you, but guess what? I don't know what any of you give. I don't. I've been a pastor for 13 years. I don't ever search the records. I don't look and see what any of you give. I don't know. So you could give, be the biggest giver or not giving out. I would never know. And, and, I, and, and even if I did know, how would I monitor if you're giving in proportion to your income? Would I want to, okay, bring your tax form to me. Show me your accounts, and let's just put these two together and make sure you're giving. I, I don't know, because it's, it's a very hard thing to monitor. And so if you are stealing from God this morning, we can't see it. If the offering plate is being passed around, and I'm watching you, and you stick your hand in the offering and take some cash out and stick it in your pocket, then the ushers will jump you. <laughs> They'll jump you. Well, they will. But guess what? You could be sticking money in every week and you could still be robbing God. Because you're robbing God not by what you put in, by what you kept. We can't see it. But God can see it. And it's robbing him. And it's sad to say that it happens every Sunday. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well, this is interesting because God says, put me to the test. I always thought it was sinful to put God to the test. And in most cases, it is sinful to put God to the test. But here he says, come on. Come on. In this situation, for the Israelites, he says, come on, investigate my faithfulness. Come on, challenge me, test me, investigate me. And what he's getting at, he says, test me and watch. I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven, and I'm going to open up the heavens for rain, and you're going to have so much crops and so much food for your provision. But you've you got to test me. You have to walk in obedience and test me. Now, for those of you who have grown up in certain churches um, where they have promoted uh, a, a certain prosperity gospel or a health and wealth gospel where you've heard these verses preached where if you will sow a certain seed into a certain ministry, then God will give you a Mercedes-Benz. Or if you sow a certain seed, then God will give you a new house. I've told you before, I was watching one of these faith teachers telling a story how this little boy wanted a pony and couldn't afford a pony, but he, he gave all the money he had to the offering, and the next day the Lord gave him a pony. I love how that works. But that is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about putting money into the rain machine, and once you put money into the rain machine, God's going to say, okay, you put money in the machine, I'm going to open it up. It's not about that, because we don't, we don't give to get. We give to worship. This is, this is what God wants. He wants our hearts to worship him. And when we obey in our giving, it's worship. And as we give to him, he will give provision. He will take care of us. 
and give us plenty to live and to survive. And though this testing language, I really think this testing language can just be left here in Malachi. I don't know if I would encourage you to to test God in this language that was in this specific situation in Malachi. Maybe I can be corrected. But I still think the New Testament offers uh, the similar language of, 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 of giving to God. Let me, let me read this uh, passage to you. This is about the collection for suffering believers in Jerusalem. It's in 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 6 through 8. I think this is similar language. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Malachi has this language of opening the floodgates for provision, and I think uh, in, in the New Testament, Paul is talking about this provision of reaping bountifully or grace abounding, the terminology of being enriched. And I, and I think the idea here is that as we are generous in our giving, the Lord is going to be generous in giving us an overflow for the kingdom. That, that it means that if we, as we give to the Lord, he's going to give to us in a variety of ways and enable us to, to have our lives spill over with a variety of good works, and part of that good works could include the ability to continue to give. And I would argue that you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God because God will always continue to give you more. And I want to challenge you from the Scripture passage that we just saw, so bountifully, so bountifully, and just watch what happens. Just, just get aggressive and joyful in giving to the Lord, and you just watch what happens in your own life. It's, it's been a challenge to think through this uh, as a single person when I was single about giving to the Lord. And then when, when I got married at 25, I'm thinking through, okay, we want to really give to the Lord. But it's, it's, al- it's always a struggle, you know. It's always a heart issue. But my wife and I have experienced, and we've seen it, not always perfectly because, you know, we like to hold back stuff. But when we give to the Lord, we're shocked. I remember when we got married. Some of you, uh, when you get married, what happens? This may be a good reason to get married. You get a lot of cash. Like people will give you cash. They don't know what to buy you, so they give you cash, which is always a good idea. And so we had this cash. And it, it wasn't a lot if I told you the amount, but it was a lot for us, newly married and we're like, okay, what are we going to do with this money? And we decided to set the tone. And so we, we gave a good chunk of it away. And God continued to make provision. And I moved from Dallas to California in our first church, and, and our check was very, very meager. Really, really small. Small. And they're like, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't make much. The Lord would understand, right? He would, come on. He'd understand. But no, we said, no, we set the tone. We're going to keep giving. Going to keep giving. And what we found is that the Lord kept providing over and over and over again. And I'm telling you, if you give to the Lord generously, I, I believe you'll be shocked 
what he'll do. He'll continue to pour into you so you can overflow with good works and grace will abound, including the grace of giving. And, and for those of you who are in accountability relationships, I think you should insert the giving into your accountability. I mean, we're always talking about purity. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about scripture memory. But you know what? How about inserting the concept of giving by asking the question, how are you giving? Are you giving generously? Are you giving in proportion to your income? I, I think it's important because it really shows what's going on in our heart and monitors where our true treasures are. So include that in your accountability. How are you doing in giving? Oh, this is good. The last two verses are so good here. Look at verses 11 and 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And the vining in the field shall not fail the bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So we say, not only am I going to send you rain, but I'm going I'm to get rid of those locusts that are devouring. Uh, no longer your fruit's going to be destroyed. No longer your vine's going to fail to the bear. There's going to be this abundance. And then all the nations around this little dinky land of Israel are going to see the prosperity of Israel, and they're going to look at them, and they're going to say, I want some of that. The nations will call Israel, as it says here, they're going to call them blessed. And they will be a delightful land. The nations will notice. And this is a big deal because this, this would be such an amazing turnaround for Israel. Because during the Persian Empire, Israel, this is not their glory days. They are not impressive at all. Israel at this time in their history is kind of like the place where I grew up in this downtrodden portion of Dallas. Uh, people, even when I tell people I'm from Dallas and where I'm from, they've never, many don't know this area of Dallas. And if they do know it, they've never been there. It's, 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 it's an area called Pleasant Grove of Dallas. And people called my part of town while I was growing up, they called it the armpit of Texas. It was really a good name. The armpit of Texas. And that's what Israel would be in the vast Persian Empire. They would be the armpit of the Persian Empire. And God's saying, but if you return to me, then so many blessings are going to be poured out on you that the nations are going to want to get in on it. Isn't that a beautiful description of the people of God? They're just overflowing. The nations are going to stream to them and look and see what's going on. Say, I want some of that. And I think that's the way the people of God should be characterized and the nation should view us, not in a in necessarily in a materialistic way, but we are people who have been showered with these abundant blessings in Christ, and it should show. Like I said, I'm not talking about this material prosperity for us, but an abundant of blessings in the spiritual realm. And I am wondering what would happen if the church started to leverage their finances, material finances, pouring them into the kingdom of God, and the nations took notice and the nation started to be drawn to our gospel by the way we live sacrificially and caring for one another and caring for the nations and caring for the world. Like what if our giving was so extravagant that it just kept spilling over 
to the nations, that we looked out to the nations and we saw the millions who do not know Jesus Christ, and we try to give as much as we possibly could give so that we can send people around the world as missionaries to tell them about Jesus Christ. And as the missionaries went out there and told them about Christ and they got converted, those people would say, you loved me so much that you took your money and you gave sacrificially so I can know Jesus? And you are a delightful people. You guys are wonderful. What if we gave like that? I mean, often we don't. I think one of the, one of the, one of the, the, the saddest testimonies against the American Christian church is that we have missionaries raising support that are so stinking far behind. That is pathetic. And I'm not mad at the missionaries. I like the missionaries. I'm like, is it possible that we're so selfish that people are dying without the gospel and our missionaries are like at 50%? Like, what is the deal? Really? Well, do we want praise to come to God from the nations? Then we should give sacrificially and send missionaries for many of you just around the other many in our congregation that are struggling as missionaries just to get sent. That, that should not be. We want the gospel to go out to the nations so they can stream to the Lord and worship. And it's just not for the gospel to go out, it's, but it's also for the poor and the suffering in the world. What if we leveraged our finances as, as Christians, as churches, for the poor and suffering of the world so that they could be comforted, so that they could be healed, so that they could come up to us and go, what is this gospel that is moving you to care for me when you don't even know me? I have to tell you this. And you know, you always hear these stories of the poor and suffering, and you always wonder, is that real? Is is that really happening there? Remember last week I told you uh, about we're adopting a little girl from Africa and Ethiopia, and we were like, oh, we're waiting for a court date. Well, praise God, this week we got one. We're going over there around Christmas time to uh, go to court to try to adopt our little, little baby girl. But there are families over there this past week that kind of, you kind of go in there clumps of five couples, six couples. And, you, and when you're there, you don't just get to see your child, and you don't get to just go to court, but they let you tour orphanages. And so we're kind of connected with these people, connected through chatting and email. And so they went to tour this one orphanage, this group. So they walk in, and, you know, this is my wife and I, we're going to go there in, in December. They walk in, and you have the beds where the older kids sleep. And it's like, this is great, great orphanage. And then the older kids were playing outside, and some of the adults from our group were just kind of mingling around. And they're like, let's, let's go back here. Let's go back here in this back room. And so they go back in this back room, and they see these babies in there, in these cribs without mattresses, lying in just urine because they have no diapers on. They like got these sheets, ripped sheets up, and they were just wearing sheets. And so these friends of ours picked up these babies, and they're like soaking wet. And we're like, is that real? Yeah, that's real. Can we do something about that? Oh, absolutely. And so they went out, went to action, and just got as much as they could possibly get to pour into that. And I'm thinking, what if the people of God really stepped it up and sacrificed whatever? I mean, come on. You really think about it. Babies. 
Not even a mattress. Not even a, not even a diaper. That's sad. We're going to do something? How can we live so large when that's real? That happens. And so we want to give. We want to pour into the poor and suffering in the world. And so the nations will notice and praise will go to our God. Don't you want to give like that? Don't you want to live like that? But you can't until you realize that it's all a heart issue. The whole context of Malachi is about returning to the Lord. And you're never going to give unless you return to the Lord. It's not going to flow out of you. If you're hiding some secret sin, some secret idol, your giving's going to start and then stop and then go away because it won't be an overflow of the grace of God. So there's got to be a return to the Lord before you can return to giving. A repentance and a coming back to him and a coming and receiving his forgiveness and his grace and his faithfulness through Jesus and then let that overflow in your giving because I know that's the way you want to live. I know you want to live that way. So I'm going to leave you with this. And I hope this will be the most helpful thing for you today to think about your giving. And I want you to think about it in the form of a spectrum. I'm going to try to illustrate it up here if possible. So on this side of the spectrum is robbing God. We know what that is, right? Way over here is robbing God. Way over here on this side of the spectrum is radical giving. Think about the widow in the New Testament who put in the two coins, which was everything she put in. Like if that widow came to our church today and she said, you know what, I feel the Lord leading me to put everything in, we would probably set her up with a financial planner, a financial counselor, and try to talk her out of it. But she was not talked out of it, apparently, and she put everything in, and Jesus said, oh, that's great. I commend that. So on that side, we have robbing God. Over here, we have this radical widow. And in between, we have what we've talked about today that we've called it generous proportionality, right? Now, we want to end up on this side of the spectrum. We want to end up somewhere between generous proportionality and radical. Would we all agree? Yeah? Generous proportionality and this radical widow way out there. We kind of want to end up somewhere on this side of the spectrum, because we don't want to be over here. Just robbing God. Oh, no. Let's stay away from that. Unfortunately, I believe that our culture is so skewed that we don't know the difference. We do not know the difference between this robbing God, this portion of the spectrum, and over here. I, I don't think we know the difference. I mean, for real. We're like, I don't have anything to wear. The closets are full of clothes. I don't have anything to eat. Pantries full of food. Man, I'm really suffering here financially. You're going to one of the most elite universities in the world. Give me a break, all right? We are so skewed in our thinking. We're like, okay, I, I can't even figure it out. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you land somewhere over here. Are you ready? I, be I, I believe this is from God, all right? Isn't that amazing? I believe this is from God. Here it is. I think every single person in here should shoot for radical. That, that should be your goal, radical. And I believe when you end up on this end of radical, you'll probably be more likely be ending up right here. Okay? So shoot for there, and in reality, you're ending up here. You know why? Because 
this is the biblical norm. What to us is radical is the biblical norm of generous proportionality. And we're so messed up. So what we need to do in our giving, it needs to feel crazy. It needs to feel radical. And someone may even say, you're crazy. Good. That means you're ending up somewhere right here. Most of you are not going to be like the widow. You're not, you're not that crazy, all right? But shoot for that mentally in your heart, and you'll end up right here. And you think, well, Pastor Jason, can you, is that really biblical? Yes, it is. Let me show you this last passage. It's about the Macedonian churches. I love this. It's in 2 Corinthians. The last passage I'm going to show you, I love it. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, let's stop there for a second, they're poor, like extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. So let's stop there. That, there's that proportionality, right? They gave according to their means, as I can testify. And here it is. And beyond their means, that's the radical, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. C can you imagine? Please let me give. Oh, please let me give. I just want to give more. Oh, but you're giving according to your means. Let me go beyond my means. Let me just, just go radical. Please let me give. Can you? What if we live like that? That is giving that is done to the glory of God. And I want you on the right track, whether you're young whether you're in the middle, whether you're at the, the end of your life, wherever you're at, I want you to get on the right track financially because don't think that your financial advisor is always giving you the best advice. Do not assume that what you find on some internet search advice financially is always the best advice. Do not assume that the way you've grown up trained in American mindset is the best mindset. It's, it's the Word of God that's got to instruct you. So that's what we're going to do. A few years ago, probably about three, our church read this book called Treasure Principle. Really small book. Some of you have read it. Maybe you, most of you got it and you kind of just put it away. If you still have that, you should kind of thumb through that again, especially before you're making financial decisions. Kind of just thumb through that again like, you know how it is when you're about to make financial decisions. You're like, oh, what does the Word of God say on that? Oh, man. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to hear that. But thumb through it again. And for those of you who do not have that book, here's what we got. We have 74 copies, 74, I think, to be exact, in the lobby. Not just the book, but we also have some audio books. For those of you who like audio books, in the lobby. Get it, please. And only get it if you're going to read it. It's not very long. Read it, because I really want us all on the, on the right track, thinking financially. What are we going to do with our money? How does that fit in with the kingdom? Because you're, you're all going to die one day. And when you die and you meet Jesus, you're like, did I store up treasures in heaven or on this earth? That's a big deal. So get that book, try to get on the right track financially so that we all can give to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Lord, I know there's a lot of people here who can't even think about giving because they're, they're not right with you. They're, they're caught up in sin. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's something else. I just ask that they would return to you. You're God with open arms with so much grace and, and so much love and, and so much forgiveness through, through Christ. So, Lord, I just ask that you would draw them to repentance, draw them to your love. And may this not feel like a burden to give. It may just be overflowing joy for what you've done through sending Jesus. All the riches of Christ are given to us because of his poverty. And may now in our richness, may we overflow to others, to the nations, to the poor. Use us, God. Use us powerfully to be embracing your gospel and let it spill over in every area of our lives, including given. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.